this kind of goes against some of the basic tenets of, of sabermetrics, but the more I kind of look at stats like FIP and XFIP, the more I think that they're just overrated. Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and with the 4th of July right around the corner, it's time for an all-American discussion on baseball and beer, some ERAs and IPAs, if you will, and no better guest with whom to have that conversation than VEASAN sports betting analyst Adam Burke. Adam, welcome to Props and Hops. Great to be here, Matt. I love the intro. Very, very creative there. And uh, I'll tell you what, I miss it because we don't get it out here on the West Coast, but there's a sour from Duclaw that's like a bomb pop sour. Very 4th of July. They don't distribute out here, but if anybody can find that, that's a really good beer. Mm, I think we can touch on that style a little bit later if I have the say in the matter. I love getting the beer, you know, into the conversation right off the bat. And of course, I want to let people know as we talk both beer and baseball, through your work with Beeson, a recent great interview on the Circles Off podcast with Rob Pizzola and Johnny from Betstamp in mid-May. Also know you did a nice interview on the Chicken Dinner podcast in early April. You have a lot of work that's out there. A lot of the audience probably already familiar with who you are and what you do. So I'll do my best to advance versus repeat some of these conversations and what you've already contributed to the sports betting space. But right off the top, for people who might be unacquainted or in need of a short refresher, could you give us perhaps just an elevator pitch on your background and what's gotten you to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I've been formally in the business for over a decade now. Uh, but, you know, so like most people started betting in college and things just kind of went from there. But, you know, I went to school for mass media communication. I had a second major in history. So, you know, being on air, doing a lot of writings, always kind of been my thing. Started out working for a Cleveland sports blog called the Cleveland fan. We wound up submitting content to sports time, Ohio, which is what the Indians were on uh, back in the late two thousands, early 2010s. So that was kind of my start in terms of getting published with my content, but then early 2010s uh, found the beyond the bets forum. Jeff Rake ran that. I found some people like Matt Lindemann, like sports cheetah, uh, some guys that, you know, I've really learned a lot from in this business. So yeah, I had been betting not all that successfully, but you know, once I kind of met those guys, kind of was able to pick their brains, I kind of took off as more of a career for me to where I've been in the content creation space with sports betting for over a decade now. And, uh, you know, been just shy of a year with Visa. I think I started in uh, late August. So we got about 10 months down with Visa. But prior to that, I was with bangthebook.com, ATS.io, uh, doing daily podcasting, doing a baseball betting show twice a week. Uh, so I've, I've definitely been around in the sports betting content creation space long before PASPA and, and everything became so you know widespread and, and quite frankly, oversaturated. And with all that you've done in this space, I think it's a safe bet. You're no stranger to the grind, especially in a sport like baseball. It's known to be the ultimate daily grind for a lot of betters out there. And as we approach the halfway point in the season, I'd be curious to think if we could zoom out a bit from that daily grind and just think in terms of any teams, players, anything across the league overall, where have you changed your mind the most over the course of the season to date? 
Well, I think it's really important to point out that we, we've essentially had two seasons within the season so far. You know, early on in the month of April, when the game started around April 7th, the ball wasn't carrying at all. The humidors were having a significant impact on fly ball distance. Nobody was hitting home runs. A lot of very, very low scoring games. That kind of changed a little bit in mid-May. And I don't know if it was just weather related or if Major League Baseball made some changes either to the ball or to the humidor. But we've had two seasons within a season now. So one of the things where I've had to change my mind is, you know, I'm generally a guy who likes to look at the analytics, likes to do a deep dive on all the data. And you usually need a pretty big sample size for that. But this season, I've basically eliminated the first five or so weeks of the year in terms of how I've been evaluating pitchers, players, teams, platoon splits, all of that, just because anything that happened before roughly May 14th hasn't really mattered a whole lot because the offensive environment has really changed. So that's been an adjustment that I've had to make. I mean, there are always adjustments you make on individual teams, individual players, all of that. But in a larger macro sense, I've had to really narrow my focus on what parts of the season matter. And the first part of the season really doesn't matter at all. So that's been a really big change that I've had. And, and oddly enough, you know, I started out really good for the season, uh, tracking in my spreadsheet and my daily article over at vston.com started out really well for the first four or five weeks of the year. Then when the game changed, everything completely fell off for me. And then now in June, things have been better as I've been able to make those adjustments. So you know, as you said, it is a grind, but it's also one of those things where it can't be linear. You know, you have to be making adjustments on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, sometimes even on a daily basis. So, you know, you just have to kind of roll with the punches and be very adaptable when you talk about a grind like Major League Baseball. And I feel like baseball particularly can be a tough sport for a lot of betters to adapt to. It can be just such a daily habit. And there's so much data that people rely on. It can be very quantitative in the way that a lot of betters approach the game. I think a mission for yourself in the content space, also in your own betting, and a lot of other betters out there looking to turn a positive ROI over time would be to isolate the signal from the noise. And when we're in just a sea of seemingly infinite data, whether it's something like you mentioned this season kind of being two different seasons in one up to this point, or just in general, having so many numbers at your fingertips at any given moment, what would you consider to be some of the more overrated and perhaps some of the more underrated stats to ensure that you're spending your time as efficiently as possible? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, you talk about paralysis by overanalysis, and, and that's something that can be a very real thing when you talk about all the data that's out there. I mean, you just scroll through a, a player page at Fangraphs, and you can just get buried by, by everything that's out there, not to mention the StatCast data over at BaseballSavant.com, which I use on a daily basis. You do really have to try and narrow your focus and, as you said, kind of eliminate the noise that's out there. And look, you know, this kind of goes against some of the basic tenets of, of sabermetrics, but the more I kind of look at stats like FIP and XFIP, the more I think that they're just overrated, you know, because now we have all this context of batted ball data. We know when how often guys are getting barreled we know how often they're giving up hard contact and a lot of times it was sort of well era is just based on a current you know based on happenstance based on randomness but that's not really the case you know so fip where you've got a stat where it's only four components strikeouts walks hit by pitches and home runs yeah you may you know be okay in terms of strikeout and walk ratio you may keep the ball in the park but you may also give up a lot of hard contact and that's why your era is going to stand out from your FIP. And a stat like XFIP, where you where it assumes 
an expected uh, fielding independent pitching based on a league average home run to fly ball percentage, some guys just aren't going to do that. Some guys are just going to give up more home runs. Think about a guy like Tristan McKenzie who gives up a ton of home runs. He throws a lot of strikes. He's around the strike zone quite a bit, and he's a fly ball pitcher. He'll never have a league average home run to fly ball percentage. You think about ground ball guys, they'll never have a league average home run to fly ball percentage because they don't have a large sample size of fly balls. So I think one of the adjustments that I've made is that I value FIP and XFIP a lot less than I used to just because of all the batted ball data that's out there. And it might all be relative because before that was factored into every number on the board, maybe there was some hidden value there. I think back to my conversation last week with NFL analysts, Tage Seth and Arjun Menon, who have done some great work with PFF and at the University of Michigan. And we talked about success rate in the NFL being a stat that maybe you don't want to apply as a blanket rule, you know, take it as gospel the way that perhaps some people have been thinking of, you know, teams like the Chargers with a coach who on third and 10, if he can get to fourth and one or fourth and two, that's a successful third down because then there's a fourth down that they're probably going to convert next. Whereas the metric itself says that, well, if you don't move the chains on third down, it has to be graded an unsuccessful play. I think I see a bit of a parallel there when you talk about FIP and XFIP. Yes, there's some value there, but to your point, layering in context with specific pitchers or even just understanding how the market values the metric, that can inform how big of a piece, if any, it should have in terms of your own personal betting approach. Let me interrupt real quick about this because I think it's a really important point that you bring up that I think a lot of times, you know, because you've got a lot of these stats that are incorporated into models, you know, it's just, it's black and white. You know, there's not a lot of gray area incorporated into something like FIP, but maybe there should be, you know, maybe we should challenge ourselves to evaluate these metrics differently as opposed to just accepting them, you know, as they are or accepting them as black and white. Because like I said, you know, you can look at a guy that maybe he doesn't give up a lot of home runs. Maybe he doesn't walk a lot of batters, but if he's still giving up a lot of hard contact, and if he's supported by a bad defensive team, something like that, then that kind of counterfeits the value of you know not allowing home runs because he's just giving up base hits, doubles, triples, things of that sort. I think that that evolution, you know, as a better as an analyst, is something that's really, really important to sort of continue to push the boundaries of what a stat means and interpret what that stat actually means and how you can apply it. And look. You know, there are still plenty of times in the betting market where a number moves because a pitcher's ERA is lower than his FIP or a pitcher's ERA is higher than his FIP, something like that. It's a very easy shortcut and a guide to looking for line movements. But I think in a lot of ways, we overvalue, you know, making a bet based on that metric. It needs to be something where you do apply those additional layers of context and understand that, you know, the game is evolving. Pitchers attack hitters differently. Hitters are attacking pitchers differently, you know, Think about four or five years ago, you know, guys were okay with hitting the ball on the ground. Nowadays, everybody wants to hit the ball in the air. It's all about launch angle. So you have to have a sliding scale and adjust for, you know, what giving up home runs actually means, how detrimental that actually is. It is really a big part of the betting and handicapping process of, you know, just adding and applying more layers of context to these stats and interpreting them differently based on a lot of different factors. And as you talk about both pitchers and batters trying to take a more optimal approach, increasingly we're seeing that these, these days with the three true outcomes, you know, a home run, a walk, or a strikeout. And I think that baseball, one of those sports that unfortunately with all the data that can help teams stack the deck in their favor, 
Um, it can also make it less appealing from a fan's perspective. Watching the game might be a little bit more of a grind, but I'd like to talk with you about a team that I personally root for and I think is objectively more fun to watch than a lot of teams around the league, and that would be the Angels. A lot of fun for fans across the league, perhaps, because they've got guys like Otani and Trout, yet still can't figure it out. So not too much of a threat to overtake a non-Angels fan's favorite team, but a lot of fun to watch a couple of the best players in the game day in and day out. And I think we got our perfect anecdote of who the Angels are in about a 24-hour period last week as we record this on Tuesday, June 28th, uh, late morning Pacific time last Tuesday. Shohei Otani set a new career high with eight RBIs, yet the team never led the game. It's mind-boggling that that could happen. In fact, it was the first time since the RBI became an official stat more than 100 years ago that a player had eight RBIs in a game in which his team never led. I mean, leave it to the Angels to make history and wasting greatness. I feel like I'm numb to it after a decade of Mike Trout. So pretty demoralizing way to lose in spite of a great individual performance by Otani last Tuesday. And then the very next night, they pull you right back in. Pre-game, they honor their 2002 World Series championship team. Saw some stalwarts, names you might recognize for nostalgia's sake. Tim Salmon, Darren Erstad addressing the crowd. Troy Percival, a great closer in his day, throwing out the first pitch. And then Otani answers his eight RBI game the night before with eight shutout innings and a career-high 13 strikeouts. And really, as a footnote, he reached base three times, by the way, in a game that he started on the mound. The Angels actually won that one with a great performance by Otani. And, and I just feel like it's so Jekyll and Hyde, almost like in Ted Lasso. It's the hope that kills you with the Angels. It's such a roller coaster ride. One night's demoralizing. The next night you see reasons for hope. But from your standpoint, being more objective as an analyst, Adam, do you see any real reason for hope with the Angels this season as currently constructed? Well, you know, I, I, it's, it's brutal. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine being an Angels fan. I'm saying this as a fan of Cleveland sports where, I mean, I, I've been through it all pretty much. It feels like, but the idea of having two of the three best players, maybe not even just in the American league, but possibly in all of major league baseball and still probably falling short of the playoffs is just absolutely incredible. Especially when you consider that one of them is a two-way player who quite frankly, should be the MVP every single year just because he does something that nobody else on the planet can do. But, you know, this is this has been their problem all along. You know, they've always had Trout, and they really haven't had the supporting cast. They sign Anthony Rendon, and he can't stay healthy. You, know, you really thought he would kind of be the 1B in that lineup behind Trout as the 1A. That hasn't worked out. You know, I, I, I just look at this team, and... I think it all stems from the top down. I think Artie Moreno is a guy that just is is unfit to be involved in the day-to-day operations of the team. Yes, he can be the financier, and that's fine, but he's one of those owners that meddles too much. You know, he's a guy that's just too involved in the decision-making process, and I think that that really negatively impacts them. And they've just never really been able to figure it out on the pitching side. They do not draft and develop well. That's been something that's kind of been a long-running thing for them, where a lot of times they have to go to the free agent market. and you know, free agents are guys that typically wind up with inflated value, either from a contract year or what they did in a different setting. They try to live up to that contract or they hit the aging curve or something like that. And everything just kind of falls off for them. So the fact that the angels have not really been able to develop talent from within on both the pitching and the hitting sides, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's why they're in the situation that they're in. And then they try to cover up those holes by being active in free agency wind up mismanaging their resources, spending money improperly, 
Uh, there's there's a lot of things that need to be fixed within that organization, and they're things that take a lot of time. And, and the, the problem is they're going to take a lot of time when you've got two players in the prime of their careers in Trout and Otani. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's what I was hoping to hear, but I think it's what I needed to hear. And it's some good reaffirmation because I feel the same way. But as a fan, I wonder if sometimes I'm a little bit biased or, or perhaps overly emotional when it comes to certain components of the way the team is run. Um, but hearing it from somebody like you makes a lot of sense. I know I gave you a pretty long windup in the last question. So one more quick hitter on the Angels. And let's talk about Otani for another minute or two. Better hitter or pitcher? good question i mean i i guess i would say hitter just because uh, i mean the contact quality that, that he makes it's it's one of those things you know it's it's very cliche and you hear scouts talk about it all the time but when he makes contact it sounds different it's just it's a different level of bat to ball skill that he has i i would say better hitter but i mean obviously he's a pretty damn good pitcher too it's funny. I would have guessed that you would have said pitcher. So maybe the fact that we still can't say definitively says all you need to know about how great he is. Maybe one day the Angels will even turn his greatness and Trout's greatness into a postseason run. But I'm not going to hold my breath. And let's transition to your team. You're a Cleveland fan, almost an Indians fan, but I know we've got the Guardians going out there now. You mentioned being on their regular season win total under, I believe, when you were on the chicken dinner pod back in April. And it's looking like that might be a nice one that you could get wrong. I know they're on a slide lately, but still on the cusp of the lead in the AL Central, as well as firmly in wildcard contention. What are your thoughts on the Guardians so far this season? Yeah, look, I've been pleasantly surprised. I mean, they've done some things that they typically don't do. They've cut a lot of dead weight very early, getting rid of guys like Yu Chang. They got rid of Oscar Mercado here this week. They've cut some other guys and kind of, you know, moved some guys up the system. They, they brought up Oscar Gonzalez. Now they've got Bo Naylor at AAA, who's going to be a really, really good catcher for them down the line here, probably next year, I would say. Um, look, this is kind of a transition year for them because, you know, they obviously make the big Francisco Lindor deal last year. They should play Andres Jimenez every day. Hopefully that's going to be something the rest of the way, since for whatever reason, he hasn't been playing against all the lefties, but you know, they've really kind of built up the core with, with Jimenez. And then obviously Jose Ramirez, who's an elite level player. Um, you know, the pitching is, is still a big question mark, but this is a team that has a ton of talent in the minor leagues right now. A lot of guys, a lot of names that you want to keep in mind, like a George Valera, like a Daniel Espino, We've got a lot of guys in this organization. They're all going to come up at once. Kind of what we saw with the Royals in the mid-2010s, what we saw with the Astros, uh, the Cubs as well, graduating all these guys to the big leagues at the same time. So the fact that they're kind of a year ahead of schedule, maybe two years ahead of schedule, has been really fun. You know, this is a youngest team in Major League Baseball by a pretty wide margin. Uh, there are obviously some flaws. There are some, some significant flaws with this team, but – it's been fun to watch. And, you know, I kind of tweeted about this during the series they had against the Twins last week where there are things for them that aren't sustainable. Two outs with runners in scoring position, they've been really good. The bullpen's been way better than expected. There are things that are going to drop off with this team, and, and maybe they already have during this five-game losing streak. But I'm trying to be an analyst up until first pitch and then a fan once the game starts just to try and enjoy this unexpected ride that they're on being a lot better than I expected them to be. And it's a really hard thing, you know, being an analyst, doing this for a career, doing this for a job, doing this where people are reading your work, trying to be as objective and as impartial as possible. 
But then when 705, well, 405 for me now rolls around, I want to be a fan. And that's what I'm just trying to do with this team is kind of capture that and just look for you know, the individual pieces of development that maybe do lead me towards making some kind of futures position next year or the year after. As you talk about a lot of the young talent that's coming up or already in the major leagues, it makes me wish that we could perhaps combine a team like the Guardians with the Angels, keep Trout and Otani with that infusion of young talent. Uh, that would, of course, be a dream, but the Cleveland Guardians on a pretty good roll to start the season, despite that five-game skid that you just touched on. And I feel like it would be nice to elaborate for just a moment on that last part of your answer as well, thinking about being a fan after the game starts, being an analyst leading up to that point. A pillar of this podcast I've dubbed the Molinsky Minute as a nod to the late great sports betting legend David Molinsky. And perhaps one thing he did better than anybody else I've ever gotten to know was that art of compartmentalizing. And how did you get to the point where you developed that framework of being an analyst up to first pitch and then being a fan? Um, did it require any work or did it come about naturally to kind of try to find that optimal balance and make sure that you're covering all your bases, so to speak? It requires a lot of work, to be honest with you, Matt, because sports betting is hard. You know, I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing. You talk about the success rate it takes to break even or do a little bit better than that. You know, you're losing... 47% of the time, you know, it's a very hard thing to do. And for me, and I've been very open and honest about this, you know, having had mental health issues growing up, things that I still kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. When you run into those bad stretches in betting, I mean, it's very difficult. You know, you look at the card, you don't want to do it. You're, you're very self-deprecating about it. You're very pessimistic of, well, how am I going to lose today? What, you know, what team am I going to pick that gets walked off in the ninth inning after giving up four runs, something like that. You know, it's a very hard thing to to try and accomplish and, and stay above water with mentally. So I just sort of decided, and I think maybe part of this is moving away from Cleveland, being in a different setting, a different environment for the first time in my life where I moved around the Cleveland area, but this is my first time you know, actually being away from home to where I just kind of looked at it and said, you know what? I have to find a way to enjoy sports. I have to find a way to let that be my escape again, like it was for so long, because this becomes a job. You know, this becomes a career. You get burned out on, on following along with sports and watching sports after you get done with whatever you're doing from a writing standpoint or a recording standpoint. Everything becomes an extension of your job. So to me, I just, I kind of committed to it this year. And I said, you know what? For those three plus hours, I'm just going to try to enjoy it. I'm just going to try to enjoy watching this team play and like I said, maybe it's kind of from, you know, some romanticism about being back home and all of that. But, you know, I think it's something that as I've gotten older, you know, I've just kind of realized, like, I can't let it consume me if I have a bad run. I can't let it consume me if I have a good run, you know. So that's one thing that I've, I've really come to terms with is just try to be a fan, you know, and, and whether I have action on the game or not, just trying to just sort of live in that moment and let everything else kind of kind of be external. Well said. I like the fact that you mentioned using it as an escape from time to time. Nothing wrong with a little bit of romanticism with, you know, just back to your roots. And, and perhaps if there's a soft spot, just watching the team growing up and being able to use that again as an escape from time to time, letting yourself just be a fan of a baseball team. I think one other way that you can help uh, from a mental health standpoint would be turning to something else that I know you're a fan of in your Twitter bio. It says 500 time dumb and dumber viewer. 
And I would say that if there's a movie I've seen anywhere near 500 times, it would probably be my favorite movie, Major League, which of course features your favorite team. So if we can just use movies as an escape for a moment and sticking with the baseball theme with Major League, do you have a favorite line or moment from that movie? I've got to imagine if you haven't seen it as much as you've seen Dumb and Dumber, it's probably right up there as a Cleveland fan. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's a movie you grow up with, you know, and, and especially too. What, what's really interesting to me is, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, I mean, I was born in 86. When I was growing up in the 90s, they were really damn good. I mean, they were they had Hall of Famers up and down the lineup. You know, they were a team that was perennially going to the postseason. I didn't live through, you know, at least not to my recollection, because I was just a baby and a, and a young kid, but I didn't live through those awful years. So, you know, I had a different kind of appreciation and respect for that movie than a lot of people that, you know, I knew growing up or, you know, my parents or friends, you know, friends, parents, whatever else. Um, but, you know, obviously it's, it's one of the most quotable baseball movies of all time. And nothing pissed me off more than I'd go to a game and people would misquote the movie during a game. But I have to say, you know, I love the entire spring training sequence. That's, I mean, that's best part of the movie in my opinion is the entire spring training sequence second best part of course would be bob uecker one of my favorite lines in that movie is, is when jake taylor goes to to doran's house and you know they're talking about why doran didn't come up with that ground ball that, that rucker hit in the ninth and he goes it was on my reach what do you want me to do dive for it and it's just it, it's so it's just it, it's one of those lines that people don't really use a whole lot but i love the line of that movie that whole scene is really funny when doran's wife comes walking back in with the expression on her face uh, so many good things in that movie. And I'll also say this. Major League Two is not as good. It has its moments. Rube Baker being one of those moments. And uh, I, I love the I couldn't hit sand if I fell off a camel line is is a pretty epic one for Major League Two. I'll say one other Rube Baker line that sounds out for Major League Two. They're going to send me back to Omaha and I don't even live there. Like when he's afraid of getting sent down to the minors. Yes, I would say as far as sequels go, again, something you talked about with Rob and Johnny when it came to a Dumb and Dumber follow-up. You know, not as good as the original, but perhaps if that just existed in standalone form and wasn't compared to the original, might have been much better received. As far as sequels go, I think Major League and Dumb and Dumber have a lot in common there. And I love that you picked that scene with Jake Taylor confronting Roger Dorn as one of your you know favorite quotes from the movie because it's pretty underrated. I'll say one that's really stuck with me would be when Ed Harris comes out of the dugout before a game one day, the team's taking batting practice and he just yells out, yo, bartender, Joe Boo needs a refill. And then proceeds to get whacked on the head by a bat that somebody let go of during their swing. And I love that quote because with a podcast like this, I mean, it's an ideal shirt for somebody into the props and the hops. If I go to a brewery or a beer fest or any games, I have a shirt with that quote on it. It's got a little drawing of Joe Boo. And that almost always gets a good reaction. You know, people look at me and say, it's very bad to steal Joe Boo's rum. To your point, so quotable, such a good sense of humor. You also touched on a guy like Bob Uecker. They knocked it out of the park with the cast. But I also don't want to overlook the fact that I think they really nailed the big moments when it comes to the baseball itself as well. Like every time they show that aerial shot before the play-in game against the Yankees, uh, when Rick Vaughn takes them out to Wild Thing and that last game, those are goosebump kind of moments that like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit cheesy in a sense if you want to overthink it. But I think as far as sports movies go, the way that they pulled off some of those really big baseball moments also really hit home as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that, that I love in terms of watching, you know, film or TV or anything like that is, is character development. 
and you know you 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 actually see character development throughout this movie as crazy as it is you know as much as it's supposed to be a comedy i mean there are also kind of some nice storylines to it as well and you know just kind of and then you get to uh you get to the really important playoff game and there's eddie harris warming up with joe boo next to him on the rubber yes. you know just little little details like that 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 really elevated that kind of movie and Ed Harris warms up with Joe Boo right next to him before the game. And Pedro Serrano disowns Joe Boo right before probably his most pivotal at bat in the movie. I think it's actually in the middle of the at bat once he's gotten to an 0 and 2 count. So uh, yeah, just that, that interplay between characters. I, I love that point as well. I think I'm going to have to check out major league pretty soon. If my wife will humor me, I know that we just watched it. Um, my birthday's in late March every year and leading up to baseball season. I can't resist it, but I think we've got to get a mid season viewing in. Um, Adam, I also wanted to stay kind of in the baseball adjacent lane with you, or I guess some some direct baseball correlation to what I want to touch on next, um, but not as direct as breaking down certain teams or the season to date. And it's a, let's call it a little segment that I'll dub explain that tweet. I looked through a few of your recent tweets and thought it would be great if you could elaborate on a few items. First up, you retweeted David Lorela with a note that the Houston Astros had reached 289 runs with 90 homers to get there. And Cleveland got to 289 runs, I believe at the same time, with only 50 home runs needed to reach that threshold. How do you interpret something like that? I know being a Guardians fan, that probably meant something to you. But just thinking about baseball in general, what does it mean to you that one team with barely half the home runs got to the same number of you know scoreboard output, if you will? Well, one of the things I mentioned a few minutes ago about the Guardians that, you know, they've really overperformed with men in scoring position and specifically with two outs. And a stat like that is going to illustrate a topic that Joe Pita talks about in his phenomenal book trading basis called cluster luck, where this is not a particularly great Guardians offensive team. They put a lot of balls in play. They don't strike out a lot. They are very athletic, so they run the bases extremely well, but you know, they don't hit for power. This isn't your traditional, you know, kind of lineup that you see nowadays, but they're getting a lot of these really important hits. And that's what a stat like that shows me that, you know, they're finding ways to score without the long ball, which to me doesn't seem all that sustainable because of just kind of the way that the game has sort of gone over the last few years. So that was a stat that really stood out to me. And then of course, on the flip side, it tells me that the Astros are not having as much success with men in scoring position as maybe they should, or they're, you know, kind of not setting up innings the right way, uh, stuff like that. So it was something that kind of forced me to do more of a deep dive into those situational hitting stats. And it was one of the things that uh, actually came about right around the time that I realized that the guardians were outperforming so much with two outs and men in scoring position. I think the next thing I'd like to touch on would involve a game that the guardians dodged. And that would be a retweet that you had of an umpire auditor, video post showing Doug Eddings missing, what was it, a season-high 29 missed calls when it came to balls and strikes. 29 missed calls in the same game, including six blown strikeout calls. And I will note that as an Angels fan, Eddings is infamous in my book. I mean, that, you know, blown strikeout, I don't know what you want to call it, drop third strike that wasn't back in game two of the 2005 ALCS involving A.J. Pierzynski when the White Sox ended up beating the Angels during their World Series run. I, Eddings just handled that as poorly as he could have in the moment. So seeing him resurface right now just brings back some uh, tough old memories. My question regarding this tweet specifically would be, you know, a lot of people who would be maybe more of the purists appreciate the human element in baseball. 
And at the same time, we've got the technology pretty readily available to make correct calls instantaneously. Where do you draw the line when it comes to the human element and using technology just to get it right in a more automated fashion? So like you said, I mean, we, we have the technology for this, right? I mean, the, the strike zone should be black and white. You know, this shouldn't be like calling fouls in the NBA or calling penalties in the NFL where it can be subjective. There can be a lot of gray area. Were the two guys fighting for the ball? Was there an obvious hold? Stuff like that. In Major League Baseball, the strike zone should be black and white. Every call on the field should be black and white. And I just, I don't understand how in a billion-dollar industry we continue to allow these guys to, to make bad calls. We continue to allow the standards of the game to be dramatically different game in and game out. And from a league that has inconsistent baseballs and changes them in the middle of the season anyway, none of it surprises me. But the umpires union is entirely too powerful. There's no repercussion for being bad at your job. Angel Hernandez has been bad at his job for, what, two decades? You know, all he does is sue Major League Baseball for a variety of different things. You know, he still has his job. Doug Eddings, prime example, awful, awful game. And to add to that, Guillermo Martinez, the hitting coach for the Blue Jays, brings out the lineup card the next day and starts going off on Eddings, understandably so, because a lot of those calls did not go in the favor of his team. And he gets five games for allegedly making contact with Doug Eddings. Meanwhile, Doug Eddings just goes about his day, gets another assignment. You know, it's the, the fact that there's no accountability for the umpires is a major problem with Major League Baseball. So if the only way to solve that is to go with robot umps and take away the human element completely, it's time to do it. I feel like technology has also shown me just how good umpires, referees, depending on the sport, call them what you will, but how good they are just with the naked eye in the moment. Some of these calls can go to instant replay. You have the best possible angle, frame by frame, looks at everything, and it's still tough to make up your mind. And you can see how accurate a lot of these calls are in the moment. And yes, while time to time, it would mean overturning certain calls. I think overall, a lot of people's eyes would be open to just how good umpires are the overwhelming majority of the time if baseball would open itself up to a little bit more of this process. You know, in the NFL, guys trying to toe tap on the sideline or did that ball hit the ground or not? Yeah, we, we see when there are egregious missed calls, but a lot of the time these people are, are doing it as well as you could expect humans to possibly do it. And when the stakes are high enough, to your point, you know, multi-billion dollar industry, I can't uh, fault anybody who thinks there's enough logic in just trying to get it right and make that the bottom line. Well, and I think one other thing, too, that's really important to point out is that umpiring has gotten more difficult behind the plate. You know, I mean, people talk all the time about, well, why don't hitters just hit the ball the other way? Well, you have less reaction time than ever because pitchers are throwing harder than ever. You know, we look at the the velocities that these guys have to call balls and strikes with. We look at the actual movement of pitches and how difficult that can be. We talk about the influence of catcher framing. You know, that's something that's been a really, really big buzz topic in Major League Baseball over the last few years, being able to steal strikes. I will admit the job has gotten a lot more difficult, which is another reason why I think kind of relying on technology makes sense because, you know, when you, it's actually kind of funny, I think, when you look at some of the home plate umpires that are doing pretty well based on these umpire scorecards, umpire auditor accounts and all of that. A lot of them are the younger guys, the guys that are coming up through the minor leagues, seeing pitchers that throw 96 plus a lot of the guys that really struggle in major league baseball, to your point about Eddings, 
Think about a guy like C.B. Buckner, who was bad for a long time, Angel Hernandez, all of that. These are guys that have been around when the game was a lot different, when average fastball velocity was 90 or 91 instead of 93 plus, stuff like that. So I think that's really a big part of it. Maybe you, if you want to continue to have the human element, you need to find a way to force out some of these older guys that just aren't good at the job anymore. Third and final explain that tweet question. Going to be a more fun one for you when it comes to Blink-182, a band that I'm guessing both of us like quite a bit. You noted when their album Dude Ranch turned 25 years old back on June 17th, and you linked to their music video for Damn It, which was probably the best or at least the most popular song on that album. I'll say that tweet was criminally underliked by 99.9% of your 8,000-plus followers And I do have a baseball parallel for this one as well. I'll note that I was at a Dodgers game in April and Chris Taylor used the walk-up song, All the Small Things, another hit from Blink-182. That was your crowd pleaser. Um, What would you say would be some of your favorite, you know, 90s pop, punk, rock, a formative time growing up for both of us? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I still listen to a lot of this, not all of it, but I still listen to a lot of the stuff I listened to in the 90s. I've also kind of graduated to listening to a lot more country nowadays, Uh, not top 40 country, but kind of more of the Texas country type stuff. But I I, in fact, I just saw them recently in in Glendale, uh, Pearl Jam, Uh, Pearl Jam, my Mm -hmm. all time favorite band was supposed to see them here in Vegas. Uh, but, you know, they had a, a COVID issue within the band. But fortunately, I got tickets to go see them in Glendale. It was the first time I had seen them in 16 years. Uh, I had tickets for a show in Baltimore back when I was living in Cleveland. And COVID really took hold like two weeks before the show. Uh, so that one wound up getting canceled. But uh, Pearl Jam, an all-time favorite. I don't listen to them so much anymore uh, unless, like, I catch them on Turbo or something on XM. But Corn, I was a big Corn fan. Uh, growing up in in you know uh, later years of grade school and then on into high school, uh, you know Lincoln Park coming out around that time. Not that they were in the '90s; they're kind of more early 2000s. But listened to a lot of them. Saw them on the Family Values tour. Uh, but you know, I listened to a lot of Stained. Uh, that was a band that I listened to quite a bit in the '90s as well. But you know, my best friend growing up was a big punk fan. So you know, and my nephew as well. My self-taught or my nephew was a uh, self-taught bass player who actually did some touring over in Asia. Um, but he's only two years younger than me. So, you know, caught a lot of the newfound glory, MXPX type stuff on uh, the late 90s. Um, also, like anybody else, you know, kind of had that that hip hop phase too in the 90s and the 2000s. I don't listen to as much of that anymore. Um, but, you know, Pearl Jam, definitely the all time favorite there. But, you know, a lot of Blink had that CD. Lit. Lit's a really good band too from the 90s. Um, man, just trying to think. The Offspring definitely had a couple of their albums as well. Uh, just the, the golden age of music for us, I guess, where I, I was kind of wondering, you know, it sounds like you're probably around my age. Uh, when, when does this stuff start kind of getting categorized as being part of the oldies for us? Oh, I don't even want to go there. I think you mentioned that damn it is probably now categorized as classic, which is uh, enough of a mind bender, but yeah, you almost made it through that whole answer of a lot of great name drops without touching on one of three that I had singled out. I'll get to that in a sec, but I've got to ask when you mentioned corn, I just had my first flashback in maybe decades to as a kid watching total request live on MTV. (laughs) Was it freak on a leash that had like a bullet going through a big like water cooler at an office. And there's this crazy explosion, like slow-mo that I just remember that being the coolest thing in the world to me as like a 12 year old. Yeah, that was that was the freak on a leash video. Um, that was 
It's still one of the all-time best music videos I've seen. It's very, very creative. Very fun. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe fun's not the word, but... <laughs> I, it's, it's captivating. I can't remember the last time I saw a new music video, but I will say that that one has definitely last or left a lasting impression. But yeah, for me, it definitely starts with The Offspring. You worked them in near the end of your answer. I think multiple standout albums in the 90s between Smash and Americana, and I think there were probably some others in there as well. Um, I've seen them twice in Vegas, once at the Brooklyn Bowl, at once at the Downtown Events Center. Also Everclear, a big staple of mine growing up. And then maybe more toward the pop genre, but still a bit of rock, not not so much punk. Even a band like Third Eye Blind, there's just some nostalgia with songs like Semi-Term Kind of Life or How's It Gonna Be. I, I feel like now I look at, you know, the the top 40 or, or even the songs trending on iTunes, if it's the top 10. Yeah, I'm maybe a bit out of touch. I just don't even really recognize anything anymore, even though like you, you know, I've you know, gotten into country, but it's generally not the most popular of the current country. And then that hip hop phase, I mean, growing up in Southern California with, you know, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre doing what they were doing, um, there was a lot of good stuff. So a little bit of everything, but I appreciated your Blink-182 mention and it got me really thinking hard about just the good old days when it came to the pop punk rock scene that we grew up on. Yeah, you know, I think I could be wrong. I think Third Eye Blind's coming here to uh, to Vegas in a couple of months. I think they're playing at the Virgin Theater. But yeah, you know, and it's, it's also one of those things too where, you know, I, I've kind of listened, as I've gotten older, I've listened to more of a band like the Gin Blossoms or Blues Traveler. Uh, Blues Traveler is actually one of the best shows I've ever seen. I, I, you know, like tickets were like 20 bucks. It was the House of Blues back in, in Cleveland. And I was like, you know, what the hell? Like it's 20 bucks. You know, I, I know... I know the big songs that got the radio play. I know the four or five, six songs, whatever it was, that got all the radio play. But damn, if that wasn't a great show. I mean, John Popper just, he never stopped. And I really love a show like that. And Chris Stapleton's really good at doing this too. It's so many more contemporary. But just, you know, they don't, they're not talking between songs all that much. They're just kind of jamming. You know, they're just sort of using jamming as a bridge to go into the next song. And like, they did not stop playing for almost two hours. That was a really, really cool show with seeing Blues Traveler. I like that. I'll have to keep an eye out for them. I like it when there are these acts that have been around and they've got a few hits, but yeah, it's not the, you know, several hundred dollar ticket in a crazy venue that's always tough to get to. Sometimes it's very convenient from a price standpoint, from accessibility with where they're playing. So I'll keep an eye out for that. And as you mentioned, you know, kind of going back a bit um, as, as you've gotten a bit older, I feel like I've developed an even deeper appreciation for, you know, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival, probably now going way back even from the 90s, would be if I could only listen to one band the rest of my life. Like, that would be the ticket. And I've seen John Fogarty a couple times in Vegas, got tickets to see him at the Hollywood Bowl in just about a month. I don't know what it is, but I feel like the older I get, the older my music taste becomes. Maybe there's something very natural about it, but I've just... Through, you know, the mid-90s, through the mid-2000s, middle school, high school, college, I can almost pinpoint the year that any song came out, even if I didn't love it. I mean, there's probably NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears stuff. Just, I remember, oh, I was in sixth grade when everybody was obsessed with this. So it was either 98 or 99. Um, I've completely lost that over the past decade plus. But yeah, just going back in time, there's a deeper and deeper, and I'd say, you know, very much growing appreciation for stuff that was around, you know, for quite a while before I was even born. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I Luke Combs just released a new album a couple of days ago. And, you know, I was talking with a buddy about it. And, like, it's kind of toned down. It's it's a lot more lyrical than some of his other stuff. Some of his other songs are kind of party songs and, you know, all of that. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I, I kind of miss the party songs. But then I'm also thinking he's got a kid on the way. He just got married. 
like the evolution of your music tastes as you kind of go through these stages of life and everything. I think that kind of pushes us back towards listening to kind of the more mellow CCR type of stuff or like, you know, a lot of Led Zeppelin. I listen to a lot of Led Zeppelin as well, you know, kind of things of that sort where like, if I'm going to listen to Metallica now, I find myself gravitating more towards listening to the black album as opposed to like ride the lightning or kill them all or master of puppets, just because like, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not gonna say it's noise or anything like that, but just I don't know. You, you kind of mellow out as you get a little bit older, I guess. Yeah, well, I feel like we might need to uh, maybe start up just a, a music podcast dedicated to all this. I, I could keep going on for this. And thanks to you know your tweet about Blink 182's Dude Ranch, Chris Taylor for using Blink 182 for his walk up song. Uh, I will try to get this back on track with baseball for another moment here. And in the spirit of this being a betting podcast at its roots, is there a favorite futures bet on the board right now when you look at things at this stage of the season? So I've been talking about this for weeks. Myself and Ben Wilson, who uh, hosts the run line with me on Sunday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern time, we've been talking about playing a White Sox future. We've been just waiting to play a division future on this team. And in fact, I'm looking at a World Series price too. I think Circa here in town is around 35 to 1. Maybe they've gone up a little bit since then, but... I'm kind of waiting just to sort of, you know, let things kind of shake out a little bit, specifically let this series shake out this five game series between the guardians and the twins. But the white Sox, they're too good to be playing like this. They have way too much talent. They've had a ton of injuries, obviously. And Tony LaRusso is a massive shortcoming for that team. But when they get healthy, when they get the bullpen healthy, their second half schedule is a joke. I mean, they play four teams with a winning record, four teams that have a chance at the playoffs. One of them is the guardians, Another one is the Twins. I don't think the Twins are really all that good either. The White Sox still have 16 head-to-head games left with the Twins. The other two playoff teams, by the way, are the Padres and the Astros. So that's just one series each. Um, But I think the White Sox are a team that still ends up ultimately winning the Central Division. And if I can get a team to the playoffs at 35-1 to and start playing around with that future a little bit, where they're still live with Giolito and Lynn and Cease and Kopech, and the bullpen when it's healthy, and they'll probably make some trades here at the trade deadline. If I can get a team like that at 35-1, to 1, I mean, I don't think that they beat the Yankees. They probably don't beat the Astros either, but at least I'd have a you know long-shot ticket that I could hedge into and play around with here once the playoffs begin. So it sounds like 35-1, to 1, the number you've got in the sites for a World Series title. I'm trying to do some line shopping on the fly. Um, anything in mind if people are looking at an AL Central price just for the White Sox to win the division or possibly uh, a yes in the yes-no playoff betting market? Yeah, I think I've seen their Central Division odds around plus 150, and, and they've still kind of largely been the short price or you know very close to the Twins as we've gone throughout the season here. And then that six-and-a-half game difference, at least as we're recording here, doesn't bother me too much because, like I said, they play 16 head-to-head games with the Twins. So, you know, they'll be able to kind of close that gap if they're able to have success in those games. But, yeah, anything – I'm kind of hoping I get, like, plus 160, plus 175, something like that. The fact that Giolito pitched well on Monday night is a really good thing for them going forward because he had not pitched well. Command wasn't there. Hard hit rate was through the roof. Barrel rate was through the roof. He pitched well in front of friends and family because he's a Santa Monica native. Uh, That was a really big start for him, and that kind of gave me a little bit of a push here to probably bet something with the White Sox, either division or World Series or both, by the end of this week. 
Yeah, and I'm seeing as high as plus 185 for the White Sox to win the AL Central at FanDuel as we record this. So even a little bit of wiggle room given your target price point. Uh, the White Sox might not be a team you would pick to answer this next question directly, even though you do like their odds uh, relative to what the market is saying about them right now. But if you were to make a World Series prediction, knowing what you know about the season up to this point, or I guess going back to the top of this conversation, the two seasons, if you will, that we've experienced up to this point, what would you say, you know, not so much as a bet, but just as a fan thinking ahead to the World Series, who do you expect to see there and who do you think ultimately wins it? Well, my answer is really boring on what I think the World Series is. I think it's Yankees-Dodgers. I mean, at this point, it's hard to really see anybody other than that. Maybe Houston can beat the Yankees. I don't think anybody else in, in the American League right now can, given the, the construction of that team, what they're doing from a bullpen standpoint, and all of that. But there's no equity in, in betting a future on the Yankees or the Dodgers. I mean, there's just not really a price point where that makes sense because you pretty much have to pick the winner at this point in time. I think one team that I may be kind of interested to sniff around with a little bit would be the the Milwaukee Brewers. You know, they get Brandon Woodruff back on Tuesday night here. Freddie Peralta will be back at some point. You know, uh, they'll fix the bullpen. They'll do what they have to do to fix that, whether they get somebody in trade or kind of figure something else out. But when you've got a top three of Woodruff, Burns, and Peralta, and you add in Eric Lauer, who's been really good, um, yeah, that's a really tough team. That's a team that nobody really wants to face come playoff time. So, I think Milwaukee is still a pretty live team there where they kind of went through their lull. They battled some injuries and all of that, but they're a really smart team, a very well-run team. Uh, I think the Brewers are maybe a team I'll sniff around with a little bit here as we go forward. Yeah, I, I hear you with the World Series matchup. Maybe sounding a bit boring with the Yankees and Dodgers. Should we see it? Uh, Brewers, possibly some value there. Before the season, I had my friend Connor on the show and we did our picks breakdown and I went with Dodgers Rays looking much better for one of those teams right now and the Dodgers. But for the sake of, you know, a little bit of fun, I'll stick with it. I feel like Tampa Bay, you know, they're in the wrong division. The Yankees are just, you know, running away with everything right now by the looks of it. But with the expanded wild card field this year, if Tampa Bay can just sneak in, I feel like they might have about as good of a shot as anybody. Of course, it would be an uphill battle, but based on what we've seen from them thus far and just my confidence in the way they're run as an organization, perhaps as intelligently as any organization in sports, um, we can save the Blake Snell, Kevin Cash conversation for another day. Um, but just looking at things overall, a lot of respect for the way that they do things, and it would be kind of fun to see them emerge out of the American League if they've got a bit of a run in them down the stretch here. Yeah, I mean, look, also, too, you, you talk about their lineup. I mean, they were without Wander Franco for a long period, for a, a month, and they really suffered during that month. They're missing four mainstays out of their lineup right now. Their bullpen has been ravaged by injuries, too. That's another team where, you know, if the White, if the White Sox get healthy, I think they can make a push. The Rays are the same thing where they just have a lot of really key components right now on the injured list. Pops and ups and pops and ups and pops and ups.